Spirit, we come to you this morning as individuals. We come to you as a church. We come to you with the joys of this past week. We come to you with the worries of this past week, the things that have weighed so heavily on our hearts and on our minds and that we bring with us this morning. We come to you with those. And we ask you to meet us this morning. We offer this next hour to you. We offer our thoughts to you. We offer our feelings. We offer our lives to you this morning. And we thank you for your presence. We thank you that you hear our prayers. We thank you that you've given us your word. And we thank you that you have worked so incredibly in our lives. So as we come to your word this morning, we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning. <laughs> that is loud. Anyway, as you know, Pastor Peter has left. He was in, I think, South Carolina this week. Came home just in time to turn around, and he is currently on an airplane, I believe, on his way to Columbia. Pastor Michael, I don't know where he is. <laughs> but I was told he had a prior commitment, and uh, so he's doing some kind of ministry somewhere. And Caitlin was on vacation this week, and so Pastor Peter said, would you consider coming on the 12th and speaking on the Holy Spirit? And I thought, well, that's my subject. And he said, on the 12th. And I thought, well, when is the 12th? Oh, that's next Sunday. <laughs> so... Here we are. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. Uh, as you know, Pastor Peter, the reason he wanted me to speak on the Holy Spirit is because he's starting a four-part series on the Holy Spirit when he gets back. And he's specifically following up. It's perfect timing because he's following Easter Sunday. And after Easter Sunday, Christ is raised from the dead. He comes, he meets with his disciples, and he said, I'm going away again. He said, but when I go, I will send to you a helper. I will send to you the spirit of truth, and he will work through your lives. He will work through your ministry. And he gave that promise. And so it's appropriate, I think, after Easter to look forward and to think about what is the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives? What is the role of the Holy Spirit in your life? When you think of the Holy Spirit, I'd like to know, what comes to mind when we refer to the Holy Spirit? What thoughts come to your mind? Hmm? Guidance. Anyone else? Comforter. Perfect. It's from John 16. Where? Power. Okay. I heard two different ones and neither one of them. Uh, okay, his will instead of my will. Well, always points to Christ, yes. Teaching. Anything else? Good, good. It's interesting to think about because it's not simply an academic thing. For me, it's academic on one level because this is the topic that I'm spending I've spent the last eight years on thinking about academically because my dissertation that I'm trying to write, which is taking me forever to write, is on the witness of the Holy Spirit. And the whole point of it is taken, the interest came from Romans chapter 8, where Paul was writing to the church and he said, the Spirit, his Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are sons of God. And so I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, how does he do that? What are the dynamics involved in communicating and having a relationship with the Holy Spirit? So the whole point of the dissertation is to study communication dynamics between my spirit and the Holy Spirit. So when I say the Holy Spirit is speaking in my life, how do I discern whether this is in fact the Holy Spirit speaking in my life or this is my own spirit affirming myself? Which for me, I felt like, if I'm going to go for a doctorate, 
that's my subject because I need to know that whether I get a doctorate or not. And it's really in question whether I'm going to get a doctorate anyway. So, <laughs> so, but it's more than that. It really is because this is not just something that we think about. And it's not enough to say, I can tell you things about the Holy Spirit. There's a vast difference between knowing about the Holy Spirit, knowing about God, and actually knowing God, right? There's a vast difference in our relationships with each other between knowing about someone and knowing someone. Last weekend, I came down early. I'm coming down from Deerfield, and I came down early for the Good Friday service, and so I was in the Starbucks trying to get some done and just watching people, this kind of thing. And I had a chance to sit down with Byron. There he is. Do I know Byron? Absolutely. I have seen Byron, you know, for years now. We've talked and this kind of thing. Last Friday, I learned things about Byron that I never knew. He shared things about his heart for, for addressing injustice. And I listened to him and realized afterwards, I know him so much better than I did before. Last week, I met Jamie and his family. Jamie's someone, he's been here for five years, but I'm constantly meeting people that have been here and that I haven't actually known. There's a difference between knowing about someone and knowing them. And an illustration of that is that, that there was a professor, I was reading about this, who was writing as a New Testament professor named Daniel Wallace. Daniel Wallace is phenomenal. He's written a book on Greek grammar. So that tells you something about how good he is with knowing Greek, knowing the New Testament. He knows what he's talking about. He knows what the scripture says about the Holy Spirit. And yet I was really impressed because he said that he came to a point in his life where he realized that he didn't actually know the Holy Spirit. And do you know how? His son got sick. His son contracted this rare illness, was desperately ill. And he's looking and he's, he's realizing, I desperately need to cry out to God. I need to interact with him. And he said, I realized at that point that I had so depersonalized God in my studies that, yes, I knew about him, but I didn't know him. I didn't know how to interact with him. There's a, a verse in Acts. There's a point where new believers had come to Christ. They, they confessed the, their faith in Christ, and they said, we believe. And they were asked at that point, have you received the Holy Spirit? And the response was, we didn't even know if there was a Holy Spirit. Maybe some of you come here today, and that's your sense. You say, I didn't even know if there was a Holy Spirit. Some of you say, I've heard about the Holy Spirit my, my entire life, but I don't actually know him. This morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to think together about what we mean when we talk about the Holy Spirit. What it means to be created in the image of God and how it is that we re interact with the Holy Spirit. So if you have your Bibles or if you have your phones, whichever, and you'll turn with me to begin with to John 4. John 4, Pastor Peter has already spoken about this a bit. But in this chapter, Jesus is in a conversation. And within the conversation, he's speaking with a woman at the well. And his disciples have left. He's by himself, and he has this conversation and she perceives, you know, through the conversation, he's talking with her, and she said, you know what, you're telling me things about myself that no one else could, could know. There's something special about you. And so she wants to ask a question. And the question that comes to her mind is, when we worship, where should we worship? The Jews say we should worship in one place. The Samaritans, you know, others say that we should worship in another place. Where should we worship? And Jesus' response in verse 24, 
he says to her, beginning in verse 21, he says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Pastor Peter has often made the comment that all of us have this desire to know and to be known. In this passage, Jesus is essentially saying to her, it's not so much a matter of location. It is a matter of relationship. This is Jesus affirming that God wants in our worship for us to worship him for who he is, to know him for who he is, and to interact with him for who he is. He wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. So three things that I'd like to think about. First, what is, what is the truth? about who God is? What is the truth about the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be spirit first? And then I want to think together about what does it mean to be created in the image of God? What does it mean to be a person? And then having been created in the image of God, how do we interact with God? What does it mean to have a relationship with him? And to do that, this is meant to be basically a preamble to what Pastor Peter will be doing. So, it makes sense. In every relationship, it begins with an introduction, right? So, to introduce the Holy Spirit, let's begin in the beginning. Turn to Genesis, chapter 1. Genesis, chapter 1, begins with this introduction. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There's a lot that can be said in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. But what he does is he, he begins here, he says, in the beginning, you have God. And then he goes through the rest of the chapter and there's a framework where he says, and God spoke, and then God did this, and then God evaluated it, and he said, this is good. And then God speaks again, and he does something else, and he evaluates it, and he says, this is good. And he does this over and over again, and throughout the chapter, you see God creating the world in which we live. And then as you come to the latter parts of the chapter, you get to verse 26. And in verse 26, he's created this whole context. And he says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit you shall have them for food and every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and everything that creeps on the earth everything that has the breath of life I have given every green plant for food and it was so God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good it was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Second chapter, he's going to expand on this. And essentially, he's gone from this wide-angle lens. He's narrowed in on the creation of humanity. 
the first man, the first woman. He's narrowed in on that. Chapter 2, he expands on this. And specifically, when you get to verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the, from the dust, um, excuse me, formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And then, of course, there's, there's much more that can be said. What I'd like to notice, what do you learn about God in this? When we think about relationships, think about any relationship. It begins with an introduction, right? How much do you know about a person at first glance? Some of you are well aware that you may not know much about a person from first glance. And you know that how? Because you're dating online. Right? <laughs> you go online and you're like, I'm looking for someone. Who am I looking for? And so you look and you're looking through profiles. You're looking through photos and this kind of thing. You see a photo and you say, okay, looks good. <laughs> that looks good. I like the looks of that. I want a relationship with him, or I want a relationship with her. This is part of why I don't let my, the women in my small group make my profile. <laughs> I, have not, I have not gone online. I hear stories. So, but you look at it and you say, okay, I like the looks of this person. I like the profile of this person. I like the features that seem to be there for this person. How well do you know that person? I've had friends who, I've had friends who had really good experience. I had a, someone that I met this week in the library. He said, you would not believe who I met. She is phenomenal. And so he go, he's waxing eloquent on this. I've had other ones where they say, that person was nothing like their profile. And we are never, ever going out again. <laughs> How much do you know about a person? Even if you're accurate and you say, okay, I know who Carlton is. I know approximately how tall he is. I know how much, you know, his, his, his relative. I know his weight, give or take. Good looking guy, you know, fantastic um, musician. Really, really gifted. Loves the Lord, this kind of thing. Okay, I know a certain amount from having seen him. How do I know anything else about him? I have to talk to him, right? There has to be intentionality. There has to be communication between the two. When Paul writes, uh, he writes a letter to the Corinthians. And in the midst of that letter, he says, the Holy Spirit is an incredible gift to us. And part of the reason he's an incredible gift to us is because who knows a person better? Who knows a person at the depths of who they are? On one level, you know them physically, but you're not going to know anything else about them unless they actually share with you, unless they speak with you, and they reveal something about what's going on internally. And he says, the Spirit knows the mind, knows the heart of God. The Spirit knows the mind of Christ, and so it's an incredible gift that the Spirit works within our spirits, that the Spirit has given us the Scriptures to tell us who God is. It's a level of communication that you get nowhere else because the Spirit knows God at the very depths of who God is. And that's why one of the amazing things in, in Genesis chapter 1 is that you see Him speaking so much. How many of you were alive when this happened? How many of you are going to know anything about this unless he tells you something about it? He has to. And in this, God introduces himself. And the things that he says about himself give you a premise, gives you a basis for relationship. And of all the things that can be said within this chapter, within these two chapters, there are at least three things 
that you can conclude the chapter and say, okay, I may not know how he did that, but there are certain things that I know about God. There are certain things that I know about the Holy Spirit. One, he was present. We read the first two verses. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And the, the Spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters. And he goes through and he creates all these things. And then in verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. And he talks about verse 26, let us make man in our image. He was present. And not only is he present here, he's present in your life and he's present in mine. And it doesn't matter where you go. He's present everywhere. I was listening to another sermon, actually, earlier this week. And he was referencing the movie that's out right now, theory of, The Theory of Everything. How many of you have seen it? The Theory of Everything, the story of Stephen Hawking's brilliant mind, brilliant mind, frail body, but the, the story of the, the loves in his life, the pursuits in his life, his perspective, and the theory of everything gives his life story. And it's interesting, at the point when he is on the other end of what I'm trying to do as far as the dissertation, he goes to defend the dissertation, and he makes the comment at that point that it would be Wonderful if one could find one simple, elegant way to explain everything. One simple, elegant way for me to explain everything that exists. And so he pours himself into his studies. He pours himself into studying black holes and all these other things and looking for that one simple, elegant way. And he comes to a very different conclusion than what you read in Genesis 1 and 2. One of the most common questions that he has asked is, Professor Hawking's, can you prove that God does not exist? And here's his response. His response is, we are such insignificant creatures on a minor planet in a very average star in the outer suburbs of one of 100 million galaxies. So it's difficult for me to believe in a God that would care about us or even notice us. Difficult for me to believe in a God that would care about us or even notice us. Contrast that with what you see in Genesis. In Genesis, not only does he notice us, he intended for us. He created us. It was intentional. It was divine initiative. It was God reaching out and creating us in his own image. Also, contrast that with Psalm 139. Psalm 139. O oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with everything that I do. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue. Thankfully, this morning. Even before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it. You hem me in, behind and before. You go in front of me, you're behind me. You surround me with your presence. Such knowledge, to know me that intimately, to know me that well, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where could I go from your presence? Where could I go from your spirit? Where should, would I flee from your presence? If I were to go up into the, the heavens, you're there. Or if I make my bed in Sheol, if I make my bed with the dead, behold, you're there too. 
You're in the heavens. You're in the depths. If I take the wings of the morning, I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will hold me. If I say, surely the darkness. I just have to find a dark corner. I have to find a dark place, and that's where I'll hide. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, even the darkness is, is light around me. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and I am wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast are, is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Who woke you up this morning? Was it your roommate? Was it that stupid alarm that you've been trying to get to shut up forever? Who woke you up? God is saying, I am with you everywhere you go. I am with you. I know what you're thinking. I know where you are. I know what you're feeling. I know the depths of who you are. And I am with you in all times, in all places. Who woke you up this morning? Ultimately, God gave you consciousness this morning. Personally, I didn't reach a point where I said, okay, I am going to wake myself up. I did reach a point where I said, get up. But I, did not, <laughs> I didn't tell myself, I'm going to wake myself up. That's a gift from God. He creates us. He gives us life. He gives us, he gives us personality. He, he gives us all of this. So the first thing is just to realize that what we learn about God here is that he's present. The Spirit of God has been working in your life in ways that you've never imagined, in ways that you've never recognized, because they're so, they're, they're such a constant, continual gift to you. The Spirit of God is present in the chapter. I also want you to notice in chapter 1, Genesis again, that he's personal. Who's he talking to? Have you ever asked that question? And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be an expanse. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. And God said, let us make man in our own image. And God blessed them. Who is he talking to? I heard a speaker one time say, well, maybe God's an introvert. God is not an introvert in chapter 1. God is speaking. He is expressing himself. And as we said, this is how you get to know someone. If God doesn't speak to us, we don't know who he is. We see things. We may have certain impressions of who he is, but we don't know who he is until he really explains himself and says, this is, this is what I'm doing. These are my intentions. This is what I'm going to do. And so God speaks throughout the chapter, and then he does it. And then when he comes to um, verse 26, you see something more about God. In terms of being a person, he says, let us make man in our image. Who is us? God and the animals? Is it God and the angels? No, he says, let us make man in our own image. And you get the, the first inklings, the first hints that God is more than one. Over Easter, we were celebrating the fact that the Father sent the Son 
to come to live for us, to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sins. And in this, in this one statement, let us, you see the first inklings of saying, there is a Father, there is a Son, and there is a Spirit. Notice they're all relational terms. The Father. No one is a father unless he's had a son. The son. No one is a son unless he's had a father. Spirit. The, the, the third that sometimes we, we struggle in terms of defining. What does it mean, you know, spirit? Spirit being that that internal aspect of who you are that permeates everything, that most personal aspect where we've gone past, okay, this is the profile, this is, these are the features, these are the details of the person. We've gone past just the thoughts that the person talks about and we say, this is who that person is at the core of their being and what permeates throughout there's, there's a proverb that says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when you speak, you reveal something about yourself. You may not like what you reveal about yourself, but you reveal something about yourself. It's something that you had to think before you said it. You may not have thought much, you may not have thought well, but you said it, and it reveals something about you. You learn something about yourself, and those around you learn something about you. As God speaks here, he reveals something about himself, and one of the things he reveals is not only am I present, but I'm very, I'm personal. God didn't create you and me because he was lonely. God didn't create you and me because he's all by himself and he's looking for a relationship. Within the Trinity, one of the beauties of the Trinity is that there is relationship within God himself before he's ever made us. So why do we long for relationships so much? Why is that such a drive in our life? Why is that such a longing in our life? The reason is because we're created in the image of God. And God is a personal, relational being. He has relationship within himself. And it is the most intimate of relationships that you can possibly imagine. It is the type of intimacy that we all long for in the relationships that we pursue. So you see in the first chapter at least that the Holy Spirit's present. You see that God is very personal. And yeah, you can't conclude the chapter without saying he is incredibly powerful. You may reach the end of chapters 1 and 2 and you say, I don't know how he did it, but that's impressive. I do that with Carlton when he's playing the piano. I don't know how he did that, but that was impressive. I see, I see other things in my life, and I, I say, I don't know how he did that, but that's impressive. Um, we have a, I know one of the professors at Trinity, Dr. Carson. From what I understand, he only sleeps three or four hours a night, and the man is brilliant. He spits out books like crazy, and I'm trying to come up with one. It's take, killing me, taking me forever. I look at that, and I say, I don't know how he does that, but that's impressive. When you reach the end of chapter 1, he's there. He has been present throughout the entirety of your life. You have a history with the Holy Spirit whether you realize it or not. He's personal. This isn't just a force. This isn't just a wind blowing through that knocks you over. This is a personal God. And he's powerful. And part of that power is exhibited in these verses where he says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Notice he created us as relational beings, male and female, he created them. And then when you do look at chapter 2, and he says, God formed the man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, man became a living creature. How did he do that? I don't know. I can't give you the exact mechanics of how he breathes life. But it gives the imagery of resuscitation, only there had never been the breath of life before that within the body. So I guess you'd call it suscitation. So he breathed into him the breath of life. Have you ever touched a dead body? 
Have you ever seen a dead body? I remember, I remember when my grandmother died. Um, one of the one of the processes that's gone on is, as I've tried to do my studies is during that time, my grandparents were very ill too. So I started these studies in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And while I was there, my grandmother had rheumatoid arthritis. My grandfather had Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And so I was helping the family with taking care of them. Um, essentially, we moved my parents in with me for a little bit, restructured their home moved them back in their home, moved my grandparents in with them, and then they took care of my grandparents until they passed. But I remember, I remember very vividly the day that my grandmother died, because I was there. I was there, we knew it was coming. She'd, she'd struggled with it for years and years, extremely frail. But it was amazing because her body was so frail but she was so there. She'd well up with tears. You know, she'd smile. You know, there, were, there were all of the emotions, all of that internal being were there. And then she was gone. And I remember, I remember touching the body. I remember looking at her. And I remember thinking... She is. She is gone. The body isn't. The body does not encapsulate who you are. The body does not encapsulate who I am. We're not less than our bodies, but we are more than our bodies. And if you notice, he forms, he says he forms the man out of the dust of the ground. So here you have a body. But it's just a body. And then he breathes into him the breath of life. And it says, and man became a living being. But he also says, God created man in his own image. What have we said about him? He's present. He's personal. So when he breathes into him the breath of life, there are two things that go on. There are two things, and this is getting into what is the truth about who we are? What does it mean to be a person? What it means to be a person, for one thing, is to be conscious. It helps. To be conscious and to, to be able to move, to be able to get up in the morning, to be able to function, to be able to think, to be able to communicate, consciousness is part of it. But it's more than just being conscious. There's also the element of conscience. In being created in the image of God, we have been given a conscience that speaks to us and through which the Holy Spirit speaks. Now, the, holy, the conscience is different from being conscious. It's more than that because the conscience is your moral faculty that gives you the ability to discern what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, what should I do? What shouldn't I do? Why did I do that? The conscience is that aspect of who we are that informs us. It's not, it's not in and of itself informed. Does that make sense? So we have this, this faculty. We have this ability. We have this conscience, this capability this capacity for thinking about what is right and what is wrong. It's more than just being conscious. It's making discernments. It's making decisions. You and I do this all the time. We're trying to think about, should I do this at work? Should I not? Should I do this in, in this relationship or not? Should I pursue this or not? How should I use my time? What should I watch? What shouldn't I watch? And as we're making these decisions, we're making judgments through our conscience. But your conscience operates on the basis of the highest standard known. So you're making decisions based on what I believe to be right and what I believe to be wrong. Dan, 
in court, does everybody's conscience water the floor? Does everyone's conscience operate on the same level? There are people who have no problem doing things that we really wish they had a problem doing. Some people, some of us go through life and we say, okay, I feel good about this, so it's the right thing to do, right? Or I don't feel good about this, so it must be the wrong thing to do. The reality is, your conscience is operating on the basis of the highest standard known. If you've informed your conscience well, your conscience will function well. The Spirit will speak through your conscience. So you not only have the Scriptures, where the Spirit has specifically put into writing what we need to know about God, what, it, what is important for us to know to have a relationship with God. You know, not only have him writing to us in the scriptures, and by the way, in a number of genres. So maybe you're a history buff, and you say, I love history. That's phenomenal. Give me all the history you can. He's written to us about human history and about how God interacts with us throughout human history. Maybe you say, History doesn't move me at all. I'm more artistic. I like poetry. Okay. Then turn to the Psalms. Turn to the Song, Song of Solomon. Turn to these other, these other books that have incredible poetry in them. Maybe you say, nope, I'm just very, very practical. That's the way my mind works. Give me sound principles for finance, for, you know, all of these other areas, give me those, and I'm good to go. Turn to the book of Proverbs. Look at Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Maybe you say I'm more of a philosopher. My mind, I think conceptually, you know, what is the meaning of life? What really matters? How should I be spending my life? Ecclesiastes, the author goes through the book, and he says, I pursued this thinking that this would make me happy. Turned out I became incredibly wealthy. That didn't do it. So I thought, okay, that didn't do it. Maybe I need to pursue intelligence. So I poured myself in degrees. I poured myself into books, and I had all of this learning. And I realized, and this is something I'm well aware of, of the making of books, there is no end. And then I said, okay, that's not it. So then I poured myself into relationships, and I found out relationships will let you down too. And he gets to the end of it, he says, what is the meaning of life? He says, if you define the meaning of life solely based on what you see under the sun, then it's just meaningless. You're just in a hamster wheel going round and round and round, and you'll never find anything that ultimately satisfies. But he's, the, the point the key phrase in Ecclesiastes is under the sun. Because he says, if you, if you, in the end, if you want to know what really matters, he says, what I've realized is that what matters most is to fear God, to love him, and to live in relationship with him. So it's not only what's under the sun, it's God. What's above the sun, what's around, what's everywhere. So you have God who's a personal being. He's created us. He gives us the scriptures with all these different genres to communicate to you and to me. And as we inform our conscience with the scriptures, the Spirit speaks through those scriptures. So it's not just, does this seem right to me? Does this seem wrong to me? It is also, has my conscience been informed by the one who made me? Am I listening to his voice? Do I hear him when he speaks? So he's created us in his image. And in being created in his image, we have, we're conscious, we have a conscience, and also we're made for relationships. Notice what he says, male and female, he created them. And what is his first instruction? Be fruitful and multiply. And some of you internally are saying, Yes, there we go. Because relationships really are, they really are the stuff of life. And he's looking at this and he, 
He's saying, you are made in the image of God. God is a relational being before he ever created this world. He's a relational being before he ever created you and me. And so when he creates us, he creates us in his image, and our existence reflects him, and our loves also reflect him. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Weight of Glory. And in The Weight of Glory, he commented that there is no way that our desires can be satisfied in the, in the immediacy of what we have. So Pastor Peter talks about we're, we're made for relationships and that all of us long to know and to be known. C.S. Lewis is saying, we long to know and to be known in the relationships that we have with each other. And that's, that's valid, that's good, but it's not the end all. It's actually a reflection of the fact that we were made to have a relationship with God. So, the relationships, the loves that we have, he describes them in this way. He says, they are only the scent of a flower that we haven't found. They are the echo of a tune that we haven't heard. They are news from a country that we haven't visited. They're the scent of a flower that we haven't found. In other words, it's very real. The relationships that we have, the interactions that we have with each other, absolutely meaningful and, and worthwhile to, to pour ourselves into each other. And at the same time, he says, those relationships are indications of something that's far greater. And you are meant for an intimacy that you can only have with God. And part of the reason you can only have them with God is because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Reason being, I can only know so much about you, and you can only know so much about me. And that's even if we talk forever. I have a friend. He and I, uh, we started accountability uh, when, when he was at Trinity. And he and I would talk. We'd get together every week. We'd go downtown, walk down by Millennium Park and all this, and just talk. Talk about how life was going. Talk about the things, you know, that, that we were concerned about, things that uh, we needed to be held accountable for in our lives, and built this relationship. We still talk. He graduated. He and his wife have moved out to Princeton now, and he and I were doing a, a FaceTime chat last night, and he was praying for me about this morning, and we were talking about what our next plans are, what's going on. Does he know everything that there is to know about me? He knows a lot about me. Do I know a lot about him? I know a lot about Kahim. How about in this church? How well do you know the people around you? I know many of you by name. I know some of you much better. My small group, we know each other a lot better. Because we've cried together, we've laughed together, we've stressed together. They've promised they're praying for me while I'm doing this. So yeah, there's, there's relationship, relationship that's built up over time. And within that relationship, we know each other to an incredible extent. But we only know as much as we reveal to each other. We only know as much as we intentionally communicate as much as we speak to each other, right? The Holy Spirit knows you at the very core of who you are. Notice the Spirit, your own Spirit, is not a compartment. It's not like you get into medical school and you go into the lab and you say, there it is, that's the Spirit. And that's the pancreas, and that's the liver, and this kind of... 
you don't do that. You also, you know, you can't do that with neurology. Yes, you can, you know, you can find different parts of the brain and say, okay, this part of the brain affects this emotion, you know, the frontal lobe affects the way he thinks this way, and, you know, the one side's more creative, the one side's more analytical and this kind of thing. But the spirit, if you notice, when he breathes into him the breath of life, it's not just that I'm conscious, it's not just that I have a conscience that is then informed and, you know, and by the way, as far as information, if the conscience in and of itself was fully informed, then God wouldn't have said, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He puts them in the garden and he says, this is good for you. You can eat of everything in the garden. Don't eat from that. You need to know it exists, but you need to know it exists so you don't eat from it. So he's informing their conscience from the very beginning. So you have a conscience and you, you're, you're made for relationships. And in this, the spirit, when he breathes in the breath of life, it's what permeates everything. So the spirit is who you are. It, it permeates your thoughts. It permeates your feelings. It permeates your relationships. It permeates your body. And then he sustains it throughout your lifetime. So one of the key things that I hope we leave with this morning is that the Spirit's been involved with you at the core of who you are for the entirety of your life. He knows you from the inside out. He created you in His image. And then that gets to the final part, because the final part is, am I made for this relationship? I mean, you say I'm created in the image of God. You say I have a, a spirit or I am a spirit that permeates the whole of my being. You, you say that God is spirit and that our deepest connections are made on the spiritual level and that the Spirit knows me at the core of who I am. Am I made for this? Absolutely. So why is it then, because if some of you are tracking with me, some of you are saying, why is it if I'm created for this relationship, if he's made me in his image, why don't I feel close to him? Why doesn't it feel more natural than it does? which, of course, leads into a whole other discussion that I'm going to let Pastor Peter deal with. But, <laughs> no, actually, I'm going to start with it. But Genesis 1 and 2 is followed by Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, we take the, the divine initiative where God creates us and where he invests in us, he pours himself into us, gives us the breath of life when we become living beings. We take it and we misuse it and we abuse it. And instead of pursuing a relationship with God, we violate the relationship that we were made to have with God. And we turn those things inward. And we say, I think I know better than him what's good for me and what's right and what's wrong for me. And in doing that, we disconnect ourselves from the one who made us and, in essence, from ourselves, from who we were made to be. And that's why when, when we talk about Easter, Doc, he, he mentioned he came to pay the price for our sins, to die the death that we should have died because when we disconnect ourselves from God, we've disconnected ourselves from the source of our life. And once you've disconnected yourself from the source of life, the end is death. And it's a chosen thing. There's um, <laughs> And when that happens... The conscience doesn't function as it should. Our relationships, we make decisions that we ought not to. And it just does not play out well. At the seminary, uh, in the office next to mine, there's uh, the newest professor on the systematic theology staff. His name is Dr. Louie. And a number of the professors went through March Madness here, and they filled out their own brackets. Dr. Louis did pretty well. He got all the way to the end, and in the end, he has Wisconsin playing Duke. But he has Wisconsin winning, which I was all for because I was pulling for the Big Ten. But he has Wisconsin winning, and of course, they lost. They shouldn't have, but they lost. And so he, has, he has this in there, but it's fascinating. Underneath it, he has a quote 
And the quote is from a scholar from long ago named Philip Melanchthon. And Philip Melanchthon, his statement was, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. <laughs> and he's looking, he's basically saying, I wanted Wisconsin to win, and so I chose Wisconsin, and my mind justified that that was a good decision. My heart, since Michigan was completely out of it, my heart wanted Michigan State to win, and my will then chose Michigan State to beat Duke, which was tragically misguided within the first half. And then my, my mind justified this. It's funny. It's funny when it's March Madness. It's funny when it's a bracket. It's not so funny when it's making decisions about relationships. Some of us are in relationships, and we're making decisions within those relationships that we know this isn't right. I shouldn't do this. I've read my Bible. My conscience, the Spirit is speaking through my conscience and warning me, saying, don't do this. You shouldn't do this. And yet what the heart wants, because I've turned inward on myself, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and then my mind comes up with some kind of rationale for why it's okay. Or we do that at work. It's not so funny when you're doing it at work. You say, should I do this? Should I, should I cut this corner? Should I lie in this area? I had this actually recently with, with my taxes. I was sitting down with someone going over my taxes, and I was told, just do this. They're not actually going to check that anyway, so do this, and you'll be fine. And my conscience is screaming at me, saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Now, thankfully, I didn't. And later on in the conversation, she asked me, so what are you studying? And what are you writing your dissertation on? I'm like, well, it's on discerning the witness of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and she looks at me and she says, yeah, I really shouldn't have told you to do that earlier. <laughs> you know? And so we have this, and, and then we had this conversation about, there's a title, it's a book title, short book, small title, but the, ti the title's fantastic. And the title is, I Told Me So. The Christian Life and the Art of Self-Deception. I told me so. I told myself to do this because I wanted to do this, and so I justified it, but it wasn't right. So wrapping all this up, Wrapping all this up, Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful and it's desperately wicked. But it's deceitful and it's desperately wicked because we've misapplied what we were made for. And, and in misapplying what we were made for, we have become what we were not meant to be, less than we were meant to be, and our relationships are less than we, they were meant to be. Not only with each other, but also with God. But what I want you to know what I want you to leave with this morning is that you were made for more. That the Spirit of God created us in His image so there is an innate compatibility between your spirit and the Holy Spirit. He's been involved in your life from the very beginning. He's still speaking into your life and He wants that relationship. He's written to you. He speaks to you. He shapes you, and he shapes me. So when we come to Christ, when the Spirit transforms our life, the Spirit makes us who we were meant to be and gives us the relationships that we were meant to have. And that, that's the meaning of life. That is the theory of of everything. That's the meaning of everything. It's what you were made for. It's what I was made for. If you would pray with me.
Father, I thank you. I thank you for this morning. I thank you that you are so close, that your spirit has worked in mine, that you have not only created me, not only given me life, not only given me so much, but that you have drawn me to yourself, that you have loved me on a level that no one else can, that you have shaped me in your image. And I ask you this morning, please, work within our hearts, work within our minds, transform us, recreate us, recalibrate us in your image. Make us who we were meant to be. Help us to listen when you speak. Give us the will, the wisdom, the strength to respond to what we know is right. And help us to do it not just because we know it to be right, because, but because we want a pure, unhindered, open relationship with you. Thank you for loving us, even as you know everything that there is to know about us. In your name we pray.